Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. Nothing kills the mood like discussing money issues, but as much as we don't want that to be a reality, money is a significant aspect of relationships. If a couple isn't on the same page financially, you can almost guarantee a bumpy road ahead. There are countless studies that demonstrate money-related issues being a major source of divorce, and most of these issues aren't tactical differences. They're rooted in emotions. This conversation is about creating a common bound around money with your partner. And there is no better person to join me in this discussion than my friend, Ed Combs. Ed is a financial therapist. He helps couples create a collaborative conversation. His understanding of attachment theory, relational building, and financial planning give him a unique skill set to serve couples looking to work towards financial intimacy. Most of our conversation will center around his book, The Healthy Love and Money Way, which dives into the four attachment styles that impact your financial well-being. Even if you aren't in a committed relationship right now, this is a great conversation to help you understand how your childhood affected your relationship with money. At the end of this conversation, we'll also get into the juicy topic of what to do when one partner makes significantly more money. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the man whose job involved burning buildings and now burning marriages, Ed Combs. I've covered a lot of finance topics. I've covered relationship topics. I've never really covered the intersection of the two. And you have a lot of thoughts around that intersection. And I want to start the conversation off with what stops couples from seeing eye to eye on their personal finances? Yeah, well, we could spend the whole podcast talking about that. But I think when we really strip it down to one of the most essential elements is couples fundamentally start from this kind of assumption that we should see the world together or the same way, right? Whether that's conscious or unconscious, we can debate that. But that starting assumption sets us down the road of problems because what's really actually inherently true is each person in the partnership has a rich and varied experience with money and relationships that has already set their internal template for what they can expect to have happen around their finances. And especially when you're in those first five years together and you're still learning each other and how each other make decisions and how you think about solving problems, you're going to find those in the inevitable places where you, you don't see eye to eye, right? It, that is a hundred percent guarantee. I've yet to meet the couple that says, you know, we see everything exactly the same financially. Yeah. And I think this leads into this theory that you center a lot of your practice around and that's attachment theory. And inside of attachment theory, there's two broad categories, secure and insecure. And insecure is made up of three different attachment styles. So maybe if you can take it a step back for me, tell me what attachment theory is and what are the four attachment styles? Attachment theory is a psychological lens or framework for understanding human growth and development and the way that humans form caregiving relationships from their infant caregiver um, experiences and carry those forward into their adulthood. It's been something that's been studied over about the last se uh, seven decades. And it's had multiple angles looking at it. It started really with um, 
primate studies even and looking at caregiving as well as mother-child. It's grown into a much broader, more robust field of study. And yeah, so it's, they've led into these four categories of bonding really is what we're talking about, the ways that people experience the interpersonal relationship. So those four, let's let's dive into each of them. Um, I'd love for you to kind of expand, take as much time as you want on going through, especially um, I, I think secure has got to make sense, but the avoidant and um, anxious, I think let's spend a little bit of time there and make sure that people understand what those two are. Yeah, so I think what we want to know is for each of these attachment styles is about my relationship with myself and also my relationship with the other person, right? So it's the internal image of myself and the image of this other person I'm relating with. The secure person feels generally comfortable with themselves and can meet their own emotional needs, both when they're feeling good and happy as well as sad and scared. They can reframe and say, oh man, I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now, acknowledging that. And they kind of come back into it like, wow, that was really great. And like, yeah, that was. And then kind of keep going forward, right? That's the with the self and they can acknowledge that and, and get back to kind of a sense of like going on with normal. Or they can also comfortably turn to another person with the expectation that they're gonna, someone's gonna see them and say, wow, Ed, you're feeling really sad right now. Yeah, I am really sad right now. And I'm glad, thanks for noticing. It really means a lot. It feels very supportive for you. Or, man, I'm so excited I got to go on this podcast today and it's wonderful. Oh, you, you're excited? You went on this podcast? Yeah, I'm really excited. And it, you, you're kind of expecting the other person to be able to, to pick up with you on that. And it really magnifies. And so relationships are very comforting and exciting and supportive. And from that secure place, we can go out into the world and take on the challenges and the joys of life and also come back and rest and relax. What happens developmentally for children that don't grow up with this secure attachment pattern is they fall into one of these other two is the anxious or the avoided end of the continuum. You named three, which is the third one is the disorganized. And the disorganized really is a, is a blending or a back and forth between anxious and avoided. So if you get those two, then you get disorganized. Mm -hmm. So let's, so, for the person that has more of the anxiously attached pattern, they often feel much less secure with themselves. When they feel distressed, they don't really know what to do with their emotional world. And they're gonna turn externally to somebody else for support. But here's where it gets a little challenging is they don't really trust that you're there to support them. They, even if you are supportive, if you're more of that secure type person, you're saying, oh, wow, you feel really sad. Oh, I'm, yeah, yeah, there's something else. And, or, and they're looking for that approval externally. So they kind of over positively appraise the external person, the other partner and under appraise their own value. And they're stuck in this loop of trying to get approval and acceptance, but never really feeling like they've gotten it. Hmm. The other end of that continuum is the avoidant attachment pattern, which is I have a higher view of myself. I'm gonna be self-reliant. I'm often less in touch with my own emotional world. I would rather not go there. They tend to be a little more on the analytical side and they're not gonna look externally for other people to support and help them. Other people are seen as somewhat of a threat. They're prone to fear being engulfed or overwhelmed by relational expectations and needs. And so they're gonna pull back out or withdraw relationally if 
if the other person is asking too much, they'd rather just count on themselves. They don't also often feel like very effective at being good caretakers. So like I said, the disorganized will vacillate back and forth through that. What we want to understand is each of these attachment patterns or, or ways of being make sense in the context of the way that we're raised. And they're actually seen as adaptive in our childhood environment to the caregiving and what's available there. Meaning that the environment that you grew up in, you're utilizing or moving towards one of these theories because they're the way your caregiver handled you or raised you, this was more useful in that context or this environment. Right, it helped you maintain relationship with the caregiver. So let's, we're gonna make it a very simple example, but let's okay. pretend that you grew up in an environment with a mother that had some degree of kind of chronic depression and anxiety. And we're gonna play two different children because what happens is children can go kind of different ends of the continuum on the attachment pattern. So let's just make up a fictitious family and we have a, an older sister and a younger brother with a depressed mom. And the depressed mom is inherently not going to be there relationally and not going to be able to be as warm as she might like to be or could be because she's suffering with depression. The oldest daughter takes that responsibility to kind of, mom, are you okay? What can I get you? Always kind of hoping that mom will feel better or happier. And then she's going to start taking care of her younger brother because the mom's like, I'm depressed. I can't do it. So now the, the sister is taking care of the brother. So now she's getting into this caregiver and she's learning how to take care of other people's needs. But she's tuning out to having her own needs met. So she's becoming more anxious about managing relationships and needing to keep some connection with mom, trying to buoy her up, but never really having that happen. Now, younger brother is also not experiencing mom as being there for her for him. And he's having older sister kind of intrude on him as mom and not sister. And so he learns to start withdrawing because sister doesn't have the relational knowledge and skills or maturity to really mother him well. Hmm. She does it like a 12 year old or a 10 year old to an eight year old or seven year old in this fictitious story. And so he learns that relationships are uncomfortable, they're overbearing, that mom's not available, right? So we have all these multiple interactions that are basically confirming this little boy's experience that women don't understand me, they can't care for me, they're misattuned to what I really need. So he withdraws and becomes much more self-reliant. Hmm. So that's kind of an example of how this stuff starts to develop. And this some people get the fear when we start talking about our parents and our family of origin that we're doing parent blaming or parent shaming. That's not the intention of attachment theory or styles at all. It really is to be observational about how do relational experiences shape our sense of who we are and what we can expect in relationship. Because the follow-up to this then is you take that attachment style that you learn from your caregiver and it typically translates into your intimate relationships or probably even your friendships, I'm guessing as well, but let's just stick on intimate relationships since that's where we'll yeah. center today. Right. What can you paint the example of older daughter, um, um, younger brother, yeah. how they might present themselves in let's call it their mid twenties with their significant others? 
Yeah. All right. So let's pretend, and let's give them some names. Sure. What, what shall we call these, these siblings? <laughs> we can we can do my brother and sister, so we'll call them Ashley and Kyle. Oh, Ashley and Kyle, I'm sorry that Justin's <laughs> picking on you. <laughs> so Ashley's now 26 years old. Your sister's probably not 26 year olds, unless I, I don't know. <laughs> anyhow, Ashley's now dating. She's maybe engaged to somebody, right? Uh, and they're getting along. They're thinking about getting engaged, but it's kind of stalling out. She's really ready because she likes taking care of people. She wants to be a good caretaker. She remembers her dad not being around that much. I'm making some stuff up here. And so she really wants to be connected to this person and to be able to do this caretaking thing because that's what feels so familiar to her. But she's also likely partnered with someone who may have initially been really attracted to that. Wow, this person's really involved in me and I don't have to do so much work to get it going. More likely an avoidant partner. Mm. But now like he's dragging his feet, like she keeps asking for engagement and I'm kind of like, oh, this is like, it was initially really exciting that she wanted to be with me all the time, but now like I can't get my space. <laughs> and so he's dragging his feet around proposing, right? And that anxiety is building because they don't really know that it's their attachment styles that are driving this pattern. They don't understand that the way that they've experienced relationships prior to that coming up. Now, the other side of that is, let's pretend Kyle is on that avoidance side and he's, you know, 24 and he maybe hasn't dated. He's kind of bypassed wanting to date. And so he's not practicing and getting those interpersonal skills experience of dating someone that normally we would expect someone at 15, 16 years old to start dating and having those practice first dates and first kisses. And then, you know, you're a little bit older and you have, you know, a longer relationship. And so we know there's a very normal developmental art that teenagers go through practicing intimate relationships but if you're on that avoidant side and relationships are threatening and scary you're less inclined to engage or even recognize that someone wants to engage you in a relationship and be with you closely and so you're missing out on opportunities to really learn and practice what it's like to be in an intimate relationship and now you're 23 you're 24 years old and you're watching some of your friends maybe starting to get more serious or start to engage, get engaged. And it's can compound some of that distress. So that's, does that help? Yeah, I think it does. And to shift gears back to the secure attachment styles too, it's impossible for parents to always get it right. So I'm assuming secure parents didn't always get it right, but they must do something uniquely different than parents or caregivers of insecure children. What is that? You're exactly right. And it's a very astute observation and question. And the research is very clear on this is parents don't have to get it right. And actually insecure parents, especially on the anxious end of it, are often hypervigilant to getting it right too often mm. because they want to protect the child from relational disappointment and hurt. Secure parents have more of an open acceptance of, I'm going to mess some things up along the way in each stage of my child rearing. I have good intentions. I'm wanting to do the best that I possibly can, but I've accepted and it's okay to make mistakes along the way and learn from them. When I make those inevitable mistakes, I repair, I acknowledge that I really missed 
the boat here. So an example of this from my own life is my son is 10 years old. My oldest son is 10 years old. And like most 10 year old boys, he's getting really into video games and Fortnite in particular right now. <laughs> that's the hot game. For sure. Well, as a therapist father, that's not a great thing for him. And <laughs> he was watching some YouTube videos about Fortnite one morning. And I sat down to watch it just to try to better understand. So I'm not. And I just, after three minutes, I can't, I can't watch this. This is, this is too much. And he just collapses into tears. And I'm like, oh, you know, so fast forward a few minutes. He's like, fine, I'll just go get it off. I'm, wait, wait, I didn't tell you you need to, you know, delete it off the computer. I just, I'm not good with this, right? So now we're into the rupture, right? There's a little bit of like, we've been talking about it, but now that we're in this relational rupture, the bond of connection and understanding has broken down. The morning he leaves for school, we don't get repaired. Mm. I go off to work. I'm thinking about it a little bit. I don't lose my whole day thinking about it, but I think about it a little bit. I get home, he comes out and meets me in the garage. We're talking and I can see he's still heavy about this. And I said, well, you're pretty upset about how things went this morning, right? I'm calmed down. I'm turning back to be relational. I said, yeah, I am upset about this. And, and I can see you're upset about it too. I know there's things we need to talk about. Well, can we talk about it now? No, we can't because I'm just getting home and I got to take care of your brothers and your mom too. We'll talk about it later. So I'm signaling that you're going to have this opportunity to talk about it and we're going to work on this. And we did later that night and we got to some shared understanding. It's not fully resolved, but that whole art, right, is going on with relationship, relationship rupture, and then relationship repair. And that's the secure model, whether it's about Fortnite or whether it's about your finances, right? Which is really part of what we wanted to talk about is in the intimate partnership, you put together an anxious and avoidant person and they are... 25 years old and they're getting ready to get married. There's a lot of difficulty to talking about how we're going to blend our financial life together mm -hmm. because they don't have all the internal relational skills and psychological presence of feeling secure in the partnership that, you know, Ashley is going to understand Kyle. Like now they're getting married. They're not brother and sister, they're partners. <laughs> they both have this internal expectation that they're not going to be understood fully. And so they either, you know, one will start pursuing and the other will start avoiding out. So I'm curious personally with you, um, I mean, for me, I grew up and it was super obvious reading your book, what attachment style I fell into. I've, I've read a little bit of attachment theory before from the relationship context, really right. interesting. And it's even more of a definite that I fall closer on the avoidance scale, moving towards right. secure. Um, right. I, uh, grew up in the family where you just kind of figured out how to do things on your own <laughs> and yeah. that's okay. Um, I right. recognize that and I, I identified and I had some common language around where I was and, and where I'm moving. Where mm -hmm. did you fall on the scale? And it seems like now um, you're moving towards secure just the way that you handle your own kids as well. But has that always been the case? Did you grow up in a secure family? Oh, no, no. Sorry, mom and dad. Uh, <laughs> I mean. And so what we really wanted to name is, yes, I mean, what I now recognize is anxiously attached, 
is my primary lens and it was a lot deeper than I realized and it's been hard and what we, I want to be so part of what I want to name is that this is about psychological psychological and relational security I had financial security I had housing security I had food security sure. those were major places of stability I had communal security right I didn't live in a community that was dangerous so what we're talking about is that ability to bond and connect and what I now know as an adult that I couldn't have known as a child, and this is true for everyone, is my parents were people. And they had some pretty complex things happen in their life before they ever became parents to me, which led them to show up in very consistent ways for me or not show up in very consistent ways that I needed them to. Now, I didn't have any language to describe most of this growing up as a child. And to be frank, my parents really didn't have the language to understand themselves fully or to see, see it that way either. And so we, as every family operates in what's called in family therapy world, a family system, where there's a pretty clear pattern of way, pattern and way that things get done and every family has it. And it left me in what I felt like, and I took on a lot more responsibility for feeling for my mom and feeling sad for her and feeling concerned for her and in some ways, my dad was a caretaker for her, but the, my own childhood interpretation of what I needed to do and to be vigilant to how mom is feeling about things and to kind of tiptoe around that and to make sure that she's feeling all right. We're all, and then, you know, listening to mom's burdens and she would share them openly. And so those things all shaped me in ways that I didn't understand at the time. You know, there are also things that I talk about in the book about trauma. And um, to be honest, I experienced early childhood sexual abuse. And so at a much deeper level, those types of traumatic experiences also wired me towards that anxious, hypervigilant about how things are going relationally. And probably some of the more the magical thinking that happens for us psychologically is if I can just do this thing right and make it all right, then I'll be safe and secure. Then I'll be accepted. And that, that magical type of thinking happens for children across a wide spectrum of different traumas or neglects. So when you met Anne, what phase of your development from the anxious to the more secure were you at? And what steps did you take between then and now that led you to make some progress and, and become more of a secure parent and secure a person in general? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Justin, God, it's been, it's, so my wife and I have been married 15 years at this point, and um, I had, I mean, I'm probably being a little harsh on myself, but I had no self-awareness or self-insight when we met. I mean, I, I was a firefighter, like, studying yeah. business, like, it just didn't, you you hear the alarm at the fire station, you jump on the red truck, you go to the fire, you pull the hose off, you pull it out and you don't think <laughs> much about it. And then you eat some ice cream when you get back. Like yeah. that's, that's it. I mean, uh, you know, I can remember my mom asked me, well, how do you deal with, you know, the, the really hurt or dead people that you see? And I said, well, I just think about them like a piece of meat. Hmm. Objectification, right? So there was, I didn't have much psychological sophistication or self-awareness. Now, I also held myself out as a nice guy, a caring guy, a thoughtful guy. And I think most people would say that was mostly true. But I 
understanding people's intentions and understanding my own needs, I was very unaware of. So my wife and I, me, um, we met at an unfortunately very tragic time in my life. I met her and then a dear friend of mine committed suicide from a uh, fire academy and talking about bonding and attaching, she was there for me right after it. It's in a very kind of, in a way that, that felt very good for me. And that really solidified that bond. And so there was a, some would call it even a trauma bonding, bonding in psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Where there was a lot of things I couldn't see about it because I was so in grief at the point that we were dating. Long story short, we get married, we're going along, we have a child, I leave firefighting, I go to work in finance. That's how I get to the financial planning because I want to help people with money. And, you know, we're getting along on the whole, Justin, actually pretty well. I mean, we'd have a few things where I'm like, oh, well, chalk another one up for Anne. She is right again. And you know, <laughs> so that's that kind of anxious, like pleasing her, accommodating to her being right. And, you know, but I went back to school to become a therapist, still not really getting why. I was having more anxiety, but I didn't even really, be, I couldn't even own that I had anxiety. I, I remember, my supervisor said, Ed, you might need to go see the employee assistance program counselor. Hmm. What, what's, what's that? I don't, what are you talking about? You know, I went to talk to some woman. I didn't really understand that she was a mental health professional. I just was so very disconnected, John, uh, Justin, to be quite honest. And, but, you know, things continue to unfold. I got involved. I got into the therapy program and attachment theory, which is now my major passion, and the thing I want to tell everybody about, I rejected in grad school. Semester one, I was in this course called Advanced Developmental Psychology, and they presented um, attachment theory. And I thought, this is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, there's a famous study by Harry Harlow who looks at Reese's monkeys and their bonding patterns. And, you know, it's basically about attachment and the, and I just thought, what, what are monkeys going to teach me about myself? How is it going to help me help people with money, right? And I'm sitting here now, and I'm like, oh, my God, wow. I'm, man, I was, it's been a long journey. So if, I think when I share that story, I say, if you're hearing about this maybe for the first time, and you're like, man, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. That's right. Because there's probably, there were ruptures in your caregiving and bonding. And to really have to think about how your caregiving impacted you is threatening even mm. especially for people more on that extreme end of the attachment insecurities but anyhow i got through the program got out was trying to get my practice counseling practice up and going and we went through a very very difficult season with miscarriages and me realizing like i know enough to know like i actually have something going on inside of me i just have no idea what it is and, uh, you know, I spent a period of time in major depression and anxiety and really ineffective at being able to work. But it was in that crucible and, and dark period that I was searching and I had enough information to know I, I can figure this out. I just got to keep going and working with therapists. Um, and slowly over time, being able to accept that, yes, my parents did have a profound impact on me, that that's not unique to me, that in time getting that place of being able to forgive them for what they did knowingly and unknowingly for the most part and it, you know so 
it's been a long arc to be able to bring that into my own life, into my own awareness, and then to bring it into my relationship with my wife and for me to really be able to understand not only myself, but to imagine where she's coming from, because that was part of that miss, even on the, and this is the thing that's really hard for the anxious person is they're so accustomed to taking care of people. And they're so accustomed to thinking that they know what other people need that they actually, but they're actually not very good at reading other people and what they really need mm. because they're often stuck in more childlike ways of providing care instead of more adult complex ways of providing care. That makes sense. Um, and I'm really sorry to hear about Jordan, man. I, when I was reading that in the book, it, it, you only let on a little bit through, I think a page and a half or so of that story, but it felt like, um, it was still really tough. And what do you say? That was 15 years ago. Yeah, it was 15 years ago. And, you know, Justin, we met at FinCon recently and, you know, I lived in Texas at that point in Houston and I had the chance to go back and visit his mom uh, a few months and the pain of suicide is still very much real. That's mm. not something that I think ever fully goes away. Um, yeah. But it is also part of my experience that's driven me to really understand people and mental health. You know, it's his loss of life. My work as a firefighter, one of the things that stood out to me, as much as I characterized myself as being unaware and clueless as a firefighter, there was a part of me that was very much aware of the pain and suffering and, and really deeply confused by it because I was working in an affluent suburban city, Sugarland, Texas. And I would say at least once a month on, on shift, one of the stations would get called out to an attempted or completed suicide. So I've seen and worked with people that have completed and attempted suicide multiple times. And so my experiences as a firefighter really left me with some deep questions about humanity. Um, that's been part of the impetus to trying to sort this out and figure out how do people work? Why do they do what they do? What do we do to help them in light of that? And those are reflective questions I, I continue to ask myself, even with my current understanding of attachment theory. So putting us back on track with um, attachment theory and financial challenges, I think now I, I, I love attachment theory because it gives some really great language and identification for your relationship and allows you to start making some anticipations on how your partner might react to some things. So I would love to bring a couple examples in on how you can meet your partner's attachment needs if they are anxious, avoidant, or disorganized. You know, I read that question before this interview and I've been thinking a lot about it. I think it's a great question. So the biggest thing one is getting a clear read and assessment, right? And so whether you go to my website, healthyloveandmoney.com and take the attachment inventory there, or if you Google attachment style quiz, is one, just be sure that you're accurately identifying your own attachment style and your partner's attachment style. That's the first and most important thing. And the next important thing is to not weaponize it. We, we don't want to make our partner bad for whatever attachment style they have. We want to make sure that we stay in this place of empathy and compassion. Mm. And if you're struggling with that, that that's a real cue that you probably need to get into therapy to to figure out how you can 
show up for your partner in their way of being from an attachment perspective and how you meet those needs, right? Okay, so those are foundational. But let's say that you have that anxious partner, that that's who you're partnered with. And meeting and understanding their needs is one, they're gonna be very, very relationally oriented. They're gonna wanna connect with you. So the, one of the best things that you can practice with them is accurately mirroring their desire to be with them. So it might sound something like, Justin, if you were anxious and we were in a partnership, and you, wow, you, Justin, you really want to go out to the movies with me tonight. It's really important to you that I, I show up for the movies. And um, when I'm there with you, you feel more at ease and more comfortable. Right. And that would be predicated on some knowledge about your experience of what you get out of having me be there with you relationally. That's that. It's, the technical word is called theory of mind, but it's also just an awareness that what's important to your anxious partner, because part of your partner's relational anxiety is they're pretty much used to people not getting why they want to connect with them. So if you can really put language to why they want you to be connected with them and what happens for them when you connect with them, that then signals their brain that they can relax them relationally. They might even be more flexible with you in the way that whether you're going to come or not. But if you have a relationally anxious partner and you start minimizing their desire for you to go to the movies with them or saying it's not that important or I'll tell you later, you're going to watch that relational anxiety increase. To some point in which they'll collapse in despair. Been there. <laughs> Been there. Know that one. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think in some ways we can use that same skill set and almost use it with the avoidant partner, right? Is let's set the scenario a little bit more. The avoidant partner is coming home from work. They've had to use a lot of relational skill and energy all day long. They're coming home, and you you know your partner's more on that avoidant continuum. Can you hold yourself and say, hey, Justin, welcome home. Uh, imagine you probably want 10 or 15 minutes to go up and you know, be in the bedroom and, and unwind or transition. You know, is that what you want tonight? Right? They are not looking for you to engage them or reflect deeply on their experiences. They're looking for a simpler, more concrete acknowledgement of their need, who they are and how they relate. And if you can mirror that for them accurately, then they, they're going to feel more at ease. They can go up, disappear for a little bit, help themselves transition, and have an increased likelihood of being able to then come down and engage you relationally, whether you're on the secure or anxious side. Yeah, I could see how that could easily play out with those two attachment styles. I've seen it play out in my own life, as I mentioned, a little bit avoidant and moving towards secure, but um, early avoidant um, stereotypical mistakes that I made was just not involving my partner in the decision-making process. It was mm. a big one. It was... Um, yeah. I decided, I, I actually did this recently, decided to sign up for a big race didn't think my partner Gabby would really care about that. And she's just like, you didn't ask me. I want to be there for that. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, yeah, I really probably should have asked you. I've made a few of those mistakes trying to get a little bit more aware of that at minimum, not even 
just letting them know about some of the decisions that I've made. Uh, I've read in your book too, I wrote down a few things because Gabby still leans a little anxious as well. And, and you had a lot of great tactics in there, especially around um, uh, the finance piece, because she still has especially a little bit of anxiety around that as well. But it's right. just, um, you, you mentioned just reminding them that money mistakes are going to happen and that that's okay. And that was a big one. I was just like, oh, you need to give that reassurance because I'm once again on the other side in the avoidance, making a lot of these decisions on my own. Okay, if I fail or I don't with the with the choices that I make. Um, and I didn't necessarily realize that I need to give some of that assurance to her as well. Mm, yes, that's huge. I'm so glad that you picked up on that. It's, it's, it is very consistent with that avoidant pattern, right? You, you describe a little bit about everyone took care of themselves in my family. And so now when you're in this intimate relationship with a partner who is a little more relationally anxious, wanting to be taken care of and expecting you to, it's, there's going to be that natural place of missing. And I think that's the beauty of this lens of, of attachment is it explains why I'm the way that I am and also gives some predictability to it. Like here's the framework of what I can be looking for. And then also here's a framework of what a secure looking relationship looks like. So now I have some beacon, something that I can orient and check back towards. How am I doing? What does this look like? And I think that's part of, for me, you know, there's a number of different personality and typologies out there in psychology. Right? There, I mean, I think especially in the business world, Myers-Briggs is a big one and the DISC is another big one. And they're wonderful instruments and tools for trying to understand yourself and other people. But what, what I found in attachment theory is the connection with my own lived experience. And that the more that I understand and reflect on how what needs were met and unmet in my own caregiving environment, the easier it is for me to understand what needs I need to get more of, right? I think uh, some people really love the, the five love languages book. I don't know if you're familiar with that yep, one. Of course. Right. So a lot of people are really familiar with that one. And I, it's been a, quite a while since I've read that book, but I think one of the things for me is when we read that before I ever knew about attachment styles is, need for affirmation was probably my top love language. But there, I had no really understanding about why I needed that. And it wasn't until I went on this deeper journey of understanding my attachment bonding patterns and my childhood trauma that I could really understand where that affirmation need was coming from and manage the anxiety of not being affirmed sometimes because my wife is not perfect at affirming me. And you know she's a little more on the avoidant side of things. So we have our misses with each other and, but recognizing where she stands, where that comes from for her and her own lived experience, where mine comes from in my own, just helps me get regrounded a lot faster than just thinking, oh, I just have this need for affirmation that like, I don't know where it came from. I just need it. So I just need you to, to meet it. And that can be a place where a lot of times people will get really trapped is, well, I have this need. I just need you to meet it. Well, that just because you have a need doesn't mean you're entitled to have it met all the time. That doesn't mean you should have it ignored all the time, but it does mean like we got to work with it. Your anxiety about getting that need met or not met at different times. Yeah. 
that seems easy to take in the context of the parent-child relationship. I could really see that if you overindulge or underindulged in both of those aspects. <laughs> but I think you did a really great job laying out attachment theory. Uh, I think if people are, if you piqued people's, people's interest, especially how attachment theory relates into finance, you have an amazing book out there. Um, and we'll plug that at the end if people want to go find that book. But I want to off-ramp that conversation and move into a little bit more general counseling around potential financial challenges that young couples might face. And one that I really wanted to ask you about before the end of this conversation was something that I'm assuming you might deal with pretty frequently in your practice, but I know you've dealt with it in your own personal life. And that's this dichotomy between high earner and low earner pairings. Um, so really curious to really curious. Um, what is it <laughs> honest feelings about your wife making more money than you and your experience with that development? Man, I, I'm so glad you asked this. Um, money means so many things to each person. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at this, but I think one of the ways that I'd start from is from a power perspective. Money represents power and decision-making power. And so when you have one person that makes substantially more than the other, um, and what that substantial is can vary from couple to couple even, right? Some couples, it can be a matter of $10,000 can represent a really big difference. For my wife and I, early on, it was easily three times, if not at times four times more difference. I expected that because I know at least general understanding how much dentists can make and right. how underpaid firefighters are. So this was fascinating to, for me to figure out how big of a gap there might be. Yeah. So, you know, what's really interesting is my wife graduated from dental school and was able to get into a dental office pretty quickly and her income built up very quickly. You know, there's more than enough patients coming through. And so she was making money. And I went, I left firefighting and I ended up working at Vanguard Mutual Fund at an entry level job. Um, the pay comparison was nowhere close. And I think intellectually, and kind of from a values perspective, I would say I have no problem with women making more money than men. Sure. But that is genuine, is sincerely true. I'm not just saying that to be politically correct. Like that's I generally, that's how I, that is how I view the world. But the feeling of that is so different. And so we have, for me, at least in my experience, the layer of the income, but also the social status of being a doctor. And so we were newly married and we would go places and people would say, oh, you're a dentist. Oh, you're a doctor. Oh, that's so cool. They would kind of get excited about meeting a doctor and then like wanted to, you know, oh, well, can you be my dentist? And, and then I would say, oh, well, I work at Vanguard and I'm, you know, client representative. And, well, cool. <laughs> nice. Like, Right. Yeah. It's like, there's no social status to being, you know, a uh, client representative at Vanguard mutual funds. And so, you know, it, when we, you know, so I talked about power, if we look through back to that attachment lens, like it was a lot of my own relational anxiety. It's also, to be honest, part of what attracted me to my wife is 
I put her on a pedestal. I saw her as better than me, mm -hmm. right? That, and that's a very natural thing for an anxious person to do. An avoidant person is usually a little more and sometimes overly self-confident about what they're capable of doing because they're used to doing things for themselves and getting things done that they want to have get done. Mm -hmm. And they also can get really frustrated with other people that can't do things for themselves as effectively. So, but with that, that income differential was a really big and continues to be a big psychological journey for me of reconciling. And I've been very fortunate because on the whole, my wife has been very gracious about that. Now I have certainly seen other couples where, and so we have the, the income differential and then we have the gender role reversal. I realize we're living in this progressive society for the most part now where we are saying, yeah, women can make more money and they should, and they are, and this is wonderful and we're celebrating it. But the reality is many men, even if they do say that is their value, that's not been their lived experience. Sure. And so that's another big part of this lens is recognizing I grew up with a father who was the primary breadwinner that I internalized that as part of my responsibility. No one ever had to tell me that I would be the primary earner in my family. And I couldn't tell you how many days where the, at least at some point I, I have that thought, like I need to be making more money just so that I can be I don't know, better than my wife is not really the right word, but in the right role. Sure. There's that part of my psyche that still holds that. And I've, as much as I've tried to get it relaxed and it is relaxed some, it's deep in there. Our identities are deeply formed through our childhood. And so I think if, if you're partnering with someone who is earning substantially more than you, and that's a different dynamic that's unfamiliar to you, know that that's going to be a journey to work through. If there's a gender role reversal from cultural norms, that's going to be a journey. And I think the solution in many cases is to help the couple move towards more of that secure functioning patterns. But there can be a lot of anxiety about what does this mean for us a couple when one person earns substantially more than the other. And then especially if we add another layer of complexity in which a lot of couples get hung up on mine, yours, and ours. And that's a big developmental task that couples have to work through is how do we see money do we see it as a completely shared resource? Do we see it as we both have equal decision-making even though there's an income differential? I do wanna say also to, to men that are the breadwinners in the relationship, how do you hold that with your wife? Do you hold a position of entitled authority for making the decisions with your wife being the primary breadwinner? How does that power differential um, end up leading into often what I see is more of a parent-child dynamic in the intimate relationship. So whether you're a man or a woman, you need to be thinking about how does what I make, what does it represent to me? What does it represent to my partner? How do we respond sensitively to that? Again, from that secure perspective, because it's going to mean something to you and your partner. And if you're minimizing and say it doesn't mean anything, that's a big clue that there's something there that you need to look at because it does mean something. It can't not mean something. <sighs> that was a lot to unpack. I am sorry, I went way off in the deep end. No, no, no. That's exactly where I wanted that conversation to go. It's complicated, is what I'm getting. And um, 
it, it, it is very fascinating trying to look through your lens because I'm assuming that you were consistently reminded that you quote, quote, wifed up, um, that you, Oh God, <laughs> don't use, can I drop a F bomb on your Yeah, show? Go for it. Go for it. I fucking hate that. Like <laughs> it makes me that shit crazy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so inappropriate. Please stop saying that. Mm. I, you, you know, in my own good naturedness and anxious attachment, I was like, Oh yeah, I did. I would play it up. I married up. Yep but it, it really undermines my own value in the relationship. Mm. So telling someone that they married up is a huge slight to where they've started from and what they're contributing now. Yeah, I think we leave it there. Um, yeah. Ed, before I ask my final question to you, man, it, it's been an absolute blast meeting you. I loved our conversation at FinCon, really excited to continue to grow our relationship. Um, the book was incredible. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about the book, where to find it and what they'll get from reading it. Yeah. Wow. That's great. So, um, the book is called the healthy love and money way that's, so you can just search that, but it's how the four attachment styles impact your financial well-being. It's on Amazon. And the great thing is you can get it Kindle softback or audible. So however you like to consume it's available. Uh, the book is a combination of my own story or autobiography of how I've gotten to this place and how I've come to understand attachment's impact for our finances. But it's also diving into attachment theory and explaining what is this. I do dive into trauma and what is trauma and how do you identify whether that's been something in your life, right? So there's also the self-help piece of being able to explore and open up this conversation. There's reflective prompts at the end of every chapter And so I think what people get by reading this is a deeper sense of who I am and where I need to go to continue to grow as a person, to to heal as a person, so that I can have a greater sense of intimacy and connection with both myself and my partner, right? Which brings us full circle to that secure attachment is intimacy, that experience of being comfortable and close with both your own self and with another person. We want to live, and I love to offer this language for people in a financially interdependent way with our partner. Mm. Not a fin- we're not shooting for financial independence and we're not shooting for financial dependence. We're shooting for the middle zone, which is financial interdependency. What I do and what you do impacts, we impact each other with what we do. Very well said. And if people want to dive into more of what you've got, got going on, if they want to connect with you, you got a website out there, healthyloveandmoney.com, same name on Instagram. I believe you're also pretty active on LinkedIn, so um, they can find you out there. I highly, highly encourage people to go and take the attachment style quiz. I did that a few days ago and um, was actually pleasantly surprised that I ranked in the secure, which is... Yeah. Um, hopefully an indication that I've been trying to put in some work over the last few years and a hat tip to my girlfriend for being so patient and demonstrating what a secure attachment style looks like. Um, but you got an awesome, I think 10 question quiz, um, to identify your attachment style out on your website, which once again, healthy love and money.com. Ed, my final question for you, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16 week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Oh, 
uh, Justin, this couldn't be a better setup for the other thing that I wanted to share with your audience is yeah. I have a year-long money program called The Couple's Guide to Financial Intimacy coming up, mm. launching in January, and you can get information on the website. So for these college students, I would teach this course for them, and I would introduce them to the psychology of attachment, the psychology of affect regulation, which is emotional regulation, the psychology of family systems, the psychology of trauma. When we take those core pieces of knowledge and package them together, we end up with a very comprehensive understanding of ourselves and other people and a new lens for understanding their motivations for what they need and why they're doing it. We go from seeing behaviors and emotions and thoughts as irrational to under, being understandable in the context of that person's lived experience. Hmm. I'm curious too, what do you think would be an effective way to teach that? If I was flipping through the syllabus, what would my expectation be for activities or homework or whatever that may be? Is this more hands-on? Is this more oh, it's, um, it's academic? Deeply, it's deeply hands-on and experiential because the reality is our attachment system doesn't grow and change through new knowledge about it. Hmm. New knowledge about it is part of a change process but it's having new relational experiences that changes our attachment system. You highlighted it with your girlfriend, right? She's shown up for you in ways that's helped it be okay for you to be who you are and to continue to move towards a more effective way of being with her, hmm. right? She's teaching you how to show up for her. She's extending you grace when you misstep with her. So those are new experiences. So the activities in the program would be about that it would be there's a great activity that i like to do it's called the five adjectives and the five the activity in the very simple form is what are the five adjectives that describe your mother what are the five adjectives that describe your father tell me a story about each of these adjectives what this does is this really starts people into this reflective process about who was my mom who was my father this is a major adult developmental task. As adults, we need to become more and more reflective. This reflective processes is where wisdom grows from. When we don't learn how to become reflective about our life and meaning, we don't grow in wisdom. Age and wisdom are, don't happen synonymously. We can become wise before we age if we become intentional about being reflective. Dude, I am so excited to see um, where you take the rest of your practice, the courses you continue to develop. And um, I also believe there might be a book number two that's coming my way. So uh, yes. potentially get back on the podcast, talk a little bit more about that. But Ed, it's been an absolute pleasure. If you want to check out more of Ed, The Healthy Love and Money Way is his book. Find it on Amazon. Ed, it's been a pleasure. Justin, this has been an incredible opportunity. Thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.